0: You don't look very good like that. You look more like a monkey with a bit of mirror. What does your family call you, monkey face? I still think my way was best.
1: I must go now. I'll be late to luncheon. Anyway, if my father saw me come in both late and beautiful, he might have a stroke.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Rasslin.
1: I'm David Daw.
0: And this week, we have finally finished all of the 1941 nominees with Alfred Hitchcock's Suspicion, a sort of warmed-over, not-quite-as-good Rebecca in a lot of ways.
1: It's literally one half of a Rebecca in almost every way, except also Cary Grant and Joan Fontaine are here and that ought to save it. But like, it doesn't.
0: Well, Joan Fontaine was in Rebecca. Oh, right. Her lead is a different guy.
1: Right. And like, it's Cary Grant. So
0: it's even that way, one half of Rebecca.
1: (laughs) But here's the thing is, it's Cary Grant and that ought to be a plus. It ought to be better that the guy is Cary Grant this time, but it ain't.
0: (laughs) No, it's not.
1: It, it's that thing that I was saying about Philadelphia story. Initially, it seems like this terrible miscasting to have Cary Grant in the movie because he's going to be so charming that it's supposed to be redeemed that he's a total shitheel. Except in Philadelphia's Story, the movie kind of comes around on him being a shit heel and he has like 45 minutes to do interesting stuff. And in this, he's supposed to pull it out two minutes before the movie's done. If that. Yeah.
0: It might be 30 seconds.
1: <laughs> so like the entire plot of this is the first 30 minutes of Rebecca. Joan Fontaine meets an incredibly charming but penniless man who is Cary Grant. The two of them fall in love and get married. He does increasingly suspicious shit to try and get money, including start and then call off a business with a kind of bumbling friend who then mysteriously dies a couple of days later and asking about her life insurance and asking about untraceable poisons. And then at the very end, she's like, oh, you were trying to kill yourself out of shame. And he's like, yep, that's definitely it. You were suspicious of me, but your suspicion was unfounded. I have no proof of that, but let's get in the car and be happy together. End of film.
0: That is it in a nutshell. And in a way, it's not unlike Rebecca in that Lawrence Olivier's character in Rebecca is suspected of killing his wife, which apparently he does in the novel. But in the movie, it's made clear that his wife accidentally fell down and died because that's a thing that happens. And then you have a good 45 minutes, or at least 30 very packed minutes. Where that gets to settle in and you believe him and they're doing things to make that clear and to endear you to him. You know, this is a guy who's basically suffering from PTSD and that's why he's been so fucked up. Mm -hmm. Whereas even if... Johnny, Cary Grant's character, was trying to kill himself out of shame, he's still a shit heel
1: Yeah, he's still a terrible husband, and also, can we take a moment for... He definitely was trying to murder her, right?
0: Oh, totally.
1: There's no way. We reached, oh my god, go to the police, like, an hour before this film was done.
0: Oh, completely.
1: The fact that this is supposed to be... Oh, well, there's an innocent explanation for everything... There's been an innocent explanation, quote-unquote, for like eight rounds of bullshit this guy has done already in the movie... Why did the door fly open in the car? I
0: mean, the point where you go to the police is when you find out that he has embezzled 2,000 pounds from his employer and sold your family's heirloom antique chairs that are museum pieces. And I looked up how much 2,000 pounds would be equivalent to today. And it's 100,000 pounds stealing two thousand dollars from your employer or even two thousand pounds is isn't it's still illegal yeah but it's not like a hefty six-figure salary that you just stole and then lied to me about i guess even if you don't go to the detectives you're like ah, uh, we're gonna get divorced because you're a fucking criminal yeah and lied to me about it and sold my family's chairs that you clearly hated, and then went out and blew a lot of money. It wasn't like, oh, okay, I embezzled 2,000 pounds, and then I put it into a bank account so that we would have something to live off of for years. It was time to buy furs.
1: Yeah. So Joan Fontaine won Best Actress for this, and I actually get it. There was a joke around the time that Clerks 2 came out that Rosario Dawson should win an Oscar for pretending like she wanted to fuck Kevin Smith. <laughs> And, like, this is sort of that. Joan Fontaine does actually make it vaguely believable that this woman would make the terrible decision to stick around through this whole film. Yes. Which is an impossible task because he is just an hour and 40 minutes of red flags. Like, he does nothing in this movie that is even vaguely redeemable except be Cary Grant. And a hasty explanation in the last minute of the film that doesn't even make any sense.
0: I think it's also an apology, Oscar, for not giving it to her for Rebecca.
1: That one-two punch is definitely Oscar-worthy.
0: She's pulling a little more weight, I think, in this than in Rebecca, because the second Mrs. DeWinter is very naive, and her character in Suspicion seems to have a little more worldliness. Not a ton! But she does seem to be bright and experienced enough to intuit that there is something wrong here. And the tightrope walk of being aware that things are wrong and convincing oneself out of love is definitely a difficult thing to pull off. Especially when Cary Grant, I don't think he's actually charming. He calls her monkey face and like nags her through the whole beginning. He's such a fucking asshole.
1: Right? Right? Her father's portrait falls off the wall when he tries to propose. Basically, it seems like God could appear in a flash of lightning and go, no, definite no, hard pass on this marriage. And she'd still be like, but there's something here. Like, there's just so many red flags. And then the entirety of Act 2 is just sitting with him just being even more of a shit heel than that. And then act three is her suspecting him of murder. And then at the end, it's like, one, I still don't believe he wasn't going to do a murder. And two, why does that fix any of the act one or act two shit? Like all of that stuff is still terrible.
0: There are some good things in this movie, <sighs> which I want to point out, other than Joan Fontaine's performance. The musical cues in the movie are really very, very good, and at times are funny and sort of lighten the mood in a way that's necessary, I think, so that it doesn't become pure, self-indulgent melodrama. Mm -hmm. Joan Fontaine's wardrobe is out of this fucking world. And I think that for people who love clothes, and that's a thing that matters to them, it's enough to make this movie watchable, if not enjoyable. (laughs) She has some incredible brooches. There's a point where she and Cary Grant and their friend, whose name is Beaky, are just sitting home playing cards. And she's wearing this incredible black velvet ball gown with this diamond necklace. That's what I just wear at home. Let's have some friends over to play cards. (laughs) Or no, they're not playing cards. They're playing anagrams. And she spells out murderer. (laughs) There's a lot of stuff in there that's very heavy handed foreshadowing that I think is actually treated with an almost humorous touch. Yeah. Though I don't understand why it's treated with a humorous touch. It still ends up being a little bit funny because the situation in which she finds herself, whether or not he's trying to murder her or not, is a pretty seriously terrible situation. (laughs) Yeah. There are things about this movie that are quite good They're really down to the fact that Hitchcock is a great director, even when he's not making a great movie. You know, he brings on really good people, and the cinematography is quite good, and there's some little special effects things that are interesting. Toward the end of the movie, Cary Grant brings her a glass of milk after they've just been to dinner with this murder mystery writer... And she has told Joan Fontaine's character that there is actually this untraceable poison that she's now told Cary Grant about, but not to tell anyone. And Cary Grant that evening brings her this glass of milk, which obviously she's worried is going to be poisoned. And they had apparently put a light bulb in the glass to make it glow. So it seems extra sinister. You know, there's some interesting little touches in this movie. Overall, though... I mean, we said that Rebecca wasn't the best Hitchcock. This is nowhere near.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Apparently, the original ending of the novel is that he does murder her. Here's the thing. I think that is a better- I
0: thought it was that she killed herself because she was sure that he was going to.
1: No, she drinks that thing. It is poisoned. She just loves him too much to not drink the poison.
0: Oh, okay. But
1: she has written a letter to her mother explaining that she knows that the drink is poisoned. She just loves her husband too much to not drink it. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he goes off and mails the letter... Apparently, this is like all in a hitchcock Truffaut interview. The ending Hitchcock originally wanted was Johnny going and dropping this final letter in the mail, thinking he's gotten away scot-free, and then the mom opening up the letter, and the letter just explains the entire murder that has just gone down, so that he will get captured for it. But they're like, Cary Grant's too hot to murder. (laughs) They've gotta go back to their family. Like, the studio decided it needed a happy ending. I get why Hitchcock endlessly complained about that. But at the same time, I don't think that saves this movie because it's still you're just sitting for so long in this not at all dramatically compelling. You got to get out of there situation for so much of the film. Yeah, that ending is way better (laughs) and at least consistent with the rest of the film. But the film just doesn't have enough to hang its hat on. It's like an episode of Alfred Hitchcock presents. It's not a full movie, you know? Right. Like there are little moments like you say that are great. I kind of love how over the top the scene where they're playing anagrams which is just scrabble without a board and she just idly puts together the word murderer. Right. <laughs> Beaky who is going to get murdered is like, "Oh, if only I had an E R. Fuck. Like I like <laughs> I'm so close to having murderer." <laughs> There are little moments that are compelling, but the story from scene one is this guy's no good. And then the guy proceeds to be no good for another hour and 40 minutes.
0: Yeah, I think my major issue with the script here is that it's telegraphed so hard in the beginning by him being a total dick. Yeah. If he was actually charming in the way that Mr. DeWinter, for instance, was in Rebecca, you know, taking her out on these trips, and then occasionally, like, some weird thing comes out where he's kind of a secret monster, but then, oh, we're gonna go driving to the beach or play tennis together, or I'm gonna buy you nice things, and instead he calls her monkey face And pressures her into giving him a kiss and all of this other stuff and tells her that her hair looks bad, which it doesn't, and then takes it down and makes her look ridiculous. He's just a dick.
1: Yeah, he's terrible. And then when they get married, it's like the movie only notices he's terrible after they get married and he's irresponsible with money. (laughs) And it's like, he's been negging her from scene one. He's been just a real shitty person. And then it's like, uh, he also spends money he doesn't have. So maybe he's a murderer. (laughs) And It's like, I mean, he probably is a murderer, but also already shitty. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I did not care for this film, which is a shame because on paper, it should be Rebecca, but more, you know? Like, this portrait entirely from the second Mrs. DeWinter's point of view, because that's what worked best in Rebecca. Right. That was the best section of the film, was just this woman slowly losing her mind in a gigantic mansion. Do that, but for the entire film, and have Cary Grant there. Holy shit, this is gonna be a five? Decidedly mediocre? Like, okay? Eh? Eh?
0: I think a five. There are some artistic strengths that this film has that the team that Hitchcock has assembled and himself have brought to it, but the foundation is not great. It's lipstick on a pig.
1: Yeah, I mean, my entire argument is it's half a Rebecca and we gave Rebecca a ten, so.
0: I mean, yeah, and I can't disagree with you. Should you watch this movie? No. No. I mean, unless you're just really into clothes, and then there's an argument to be made, but you can probably find stills online because that's the world we live in.
1: There's some interesting montage overlay stuff that Hitchcock does. Even if you're a Hitchcock completist, it feels like one of the last three or four you should check off your list, you know?
0: I will say, I watched a great movie this week. Okay. That I can recommend people watch, which is also spooky and in black and white and atmospheric and auteurish. Though more in the Jim Jarmusch direction than the Hitchcock direction. It is no longer on Criterion Channel because it came off last night, but you can find it on pretty much every other streaming platform. Called A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, and it is the first Iranian vampire western slash indie flick romance.
1: Need to write this down right now.
0: And it is fucking spectacular. It is the first movie that I've watched in a really long time where I was just captivated from beginning to end. There's not a ton of dialogue in it, but the dialogue there is is in Farsi. I've actually had a really hard time during self-isolation reading anything. Like I have not been able to focus on reading a book, but every media thing that I have been engaged with that's not for this podcast has been subtitled. So I'm wondering if that's why is I'm like, Oh, I'm tired of reading, (laughs) but it's gorgeous. The music is great. The music direction is great. It turns a lot of tropes about horror movies on its head. It's very feminist. It's very clever. It's sweet and romantic without being cloying. It's also scary as hell in certain parts and very atmospheric. So, that's my recommendation for what you should watch instead.
1: (laughs) I did not watch any movies this week. I've been watching those good, good volleyball boys again with Nikki. We've also been playing a lot of Animal Crossing. So I've been watching Tom Nook fucking put me deeper and deeper in debt. That's what I've been watching. But I've been getting houses out of it, so that's something.
0: Yeah, well, there there you go. I've also been watching a lot of Babylon Berlin, and I watched a Czech film from the 1960s that was on Criterion Channel called Invention for Destruction, which is also in black and white, and is also made by a very stylistically specific director named Carl Zeman. He basically was the master of practical effects. It's an interesting watch, even though the story is not amazing. It is still a Criterion Channel, but mostly I watched it because Sean and I went to the museum in Prague that is dedicated to him, where you get to play with a lot of his practical effects. So I don't know if it would be exciting for anyone who hasn't been to the museum, though our cat loved it. <laughs> she was captivated.
1: <laughs> the only piece of media Oscar enjoys is still the title sequence to Star Trek The Next Generation. Everything else is screens, and people paying attention to screens could be paying attention to him, and he hates it.
0: Star Trek The Next Generation. Like, nothing happens.
1: I think it's just the whooshing sounds. I think it's terriers are attracted to motion.
0: Yeah, okay. I think
1: he really likes the starship flying across the screen really fast, and the whooshing sound effect, and the, like, rising and falling tones. That is my current theory.
0: Yeah, Pembe loves to watch... She actually likes a lot of television, but her favorite thing is probably the Apple TV screensaver when swimming sea lions are on. She's really into that. (laughs) If you have a cat, I highly recommend the Apple TV screensaver. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, since this is the last film of 1941, it is time for us to talk about if the Academy chose correctly with their winner and if they did not. What should have won instead?
1: They didn't. This is going to be short. (laughs) They definitely didn't. They picked the single worst movie of this year that they nominated. I don't know if it's the worst movie that came out in 1941. The podcast isn't that crazy. But of the nominees, it is the worst with Hold Back the Dawn and One Foot in Heaven coming... Not even that close.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't say nipping at their heels, but they weren't great either.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's fucking Citizen Kane. Duh! (laughs) The greatest movie ever made came out this year. I know that there is no such thing as the greatest movie ever made. It doesn't work like that. However, if there was such a thing, it's Citizen Kane. It just has to be. It's like how the Beatles are the best band. Yes, the Beatles have a lot of things that suck about them. Yes, they're the boring choice. But like... There's just too much on the scale that if you're doing the boring objective thing, Citizen Kane wins. Critics love it. It's a great movie. It's Citizen Kane.
0: Yeah, no question. Uh, there's not even an argument to be made for anything else, frankly.
1: There are other movies that I personally like better for sure. There are other movies I think are better. They're all that thing of like trying to do a smart ass pick, you know? And and I'm talking like in the history of cinema, not in this year. No, in
0: 1941, there's nothing. Yeah. That's what I meant. Yeah. In 1941, there's nothing that even comes close, that there's even an argument to be made for it being the best film that was nominated this year. There's just not.
1: Yeah. I think like number two is Maltese Falcon, I think.
0: Yeah. But it's a far too. I mean, it's a totally enjoyable flick that establishes the framework for an entire genre of film forever. And that's not to be sneezed at. It doesn't establish the framework for all film forever, (laughs) which Citizen Kane does. Yeah, And the aesthetic, and the quality of sound design, and the importance of editing, and I mean, there's just no comparison to anything else in this year. So sorry, 1941 Academy, you blew
1: it. I mean, you really kind of famously did. I do feel like the bottom of the How Green Was My Valley Wikipedia page goes, well, critics still think it's pretty okay. And that feels like trying not to blame that movie for the Academy making a famously comically bad decision. But also it feels like that actually is shielding it from some justified fire. It's actually a bad movie. In addition to a movie that the Academy made a terrible decision about, it's bad. (laughs)
0: You know, if they'd picked Maltese Falcon, I would be like, okay, well, yeah, there's a precedent for the Academy picking the entertaining choice over the artistic choice, right? Totally understand it. I get it. It is both entertaining and artistic. I mean, I would argue that Citizen Kane is actually both entertaining and artistic. Yeah. But it's not the kind of box office smash that everybody's going to love.
1: It's also like after watching a shit ton of these in a row, a shit ton of movies from this period... Citizen Kane does feel structurally like, there's a half dozen of the movies from this year where I'd be like, oh, they just weren't ready for it yet. And like, kind of understandably. right? It's nonlinear. It has this weird pseudo-historical film strip opening sequence. It's doing a lot of complicated shit. I get it. Okay, you picked Maltese Falcon. Okay, you picked the little foxes. You picked these safe choices. I get it. How green was my valley is like, did you just throw it at a dartboard and go good enough? Like, how did you get to that?
0: (laughs) They actually just wrote all of them down on a strip of paper, put it in a fishbowl, shook it up, and then (laughs) whatever they drew out, that was the one.
1: Yeah, they were like, at least it isn't Sergeant York. Like, I don't know what...
0: (laughs) Or here comes Mr. Jordan. Uh, Yeah. There is a forgivable pick here. How Green Was My Valley is not it.
1: Yeah. I'd forgive Blossoms in the Dust. That movie was boring, but I'd be like, oh, orphaned children. Okay. (laughs) The Academy's into those. There are some good performances in that. Yeah. They colorized that film well.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely Citizen Kane, which we'll say again, you should watch. It's great. And if you haven't seen it in a while, watch it again. Yeah. I might even watch it a second time. Who knows? Because, you know, I'm at home indefinitely. Though I'll probably just end up watching a lot more obscure subtitled movies on Criterion. (laughs) Because I got time. Nothing but. Also a good plug for Criterion right now, who, get at me, like, I don't have any income right now. So if you want to sponsor our podcast, (laughs) but Umbrellas of Cherbourg is on right now. And that movie is fucking phenomenal. And if you haven't seen it, you absolutely need to immediately. They also have a whole bunch of movies right now. They have like a whole playlist, I guess, of movies with Catherine Deneuve.
1: I need to watch Umbrellas of Schoenberg because apparently everything I like about the ending of La La Land is stolen from it. I've already come to regret saying like La La Land's all right. Like, I didn't even say, like, La La Land is a movie that I'm going to go to the map for. It deserved to win. Because obviously, no, it didn't. Moonlight deserved to win. But I was, like, really against the backlash against it. And now I'm like, I don't know, that movie's probably just okay. Really, it just has an okay ending. And apparently that ending is just Umbrellas of (laughs) Cherbourg.
0: I haven't seen La La Land, but I have seen Umbrellas of Cherbourg. It's just been a while. Also, a lot of good French New Wave, which I'll always be excited for safety last is on right now which is a really hard to come by film it is a silent movie with harold lloyd chaplin and buster keaton you should watch it. It has the really famous scene where there's the guy hanging off the clock on a skyscraper. And if you just want something that's really funny and lighthearted, question mark, well, it's like dark English humor. with Neil and I yes. is on Criterion right now, too. So there's some good shit on there. <laughs> Go watch it.
1: Speaking of good shit. Yeah. We're not watching that next week when we watch King's Row.
0: Nope. A movie nope. where we're going to nope. rant
1: about Ronald Reagan again. Nope. Aren't
0: we? The Invaders slash 49th Parallel is our first film.
1: Wait, is that? I don't even see that on the list.
0: It was released as The Invaders in the US.
1: Oh, and it was released at the end of the previous year or something?
0: So it was released at the end of the previous year in the UK. Ah. It's an English movie with Leslie Howard and Laurence Olivier. So really could go either way. And it still managed to be the first film on the list that was released in the U.S. that year. So it wasn't released until March of 1942, but it does beat King's Row by like maybe a month. A month. Yeah.
1: yeah I got confused because I was looking at that October date and not looking at the year. So I just organize everything by month and then start organizing by day because I forget to organize by year because that only comes up every like fourth year.
0: Right. Where there's some European or British movie.
1: Anyway... That's good because it looks, I mean, that's a bad poster. Those are two actors that I like pretty okay.
0: Yeah, I mean, the thing is, Leslie Howard and Laurence Olivier have been in movies we've loved and they've been in movies we hated. So it's really a coin toss. Yeah. They're good actors.
1: I think Leslie Howard especially kind of raises whatever the material is. Laurence Olivier kind of has a like acting barometer thing. Laurence Olivier is exactly as good as whatever he's in. (laughs) You've got to be really talented to rise to the level of the material sometimes.
0: Oh, agreed.
1: And it's a different skill set than just being able to sort of elevate mediocre shit. Yes. But Leslie Howard, I'm always like, Leslie Howard is 20% better than whatever movie he's in. (laughs)
0: Uh yeah, that's true. And in some cases is 75% better. Like I thought he was fantastic in Pygmalion and he made me kind of understand what a dick Henry Higgins is. Yeah. <laughs> Though, you know, he wasn't amazing and gone with the wind, but he was also horribly miscast in that movie's a piece of shit. Romeo and Juliet, he was a hundred years too old to play Romeo and he was 40. <laughs> <laughs> He was great in Smiling Through, which is a weird-ass film, and he played a really old dude when he was, like, 35 or whatever.
1: Smiling Through, to me, is the, like, quintessential... Boy, if that movie didn't have Leslie Howard.
0: If that movie didn't have literally everybody who was in it. Yeah. I mean... I was
1: about to say, it isn't just him.
0: Norma Shearer and Frederick March and Leslie Howard took the weirdest ass script and somehow managed to make it an enjoyable film.
1: Yeah. Anyway, uh, there's some stuff to recommend this film, but mostly what recommends it is we don't have to spend all next week talking about Ronald Reagan. So, hooray!
0: But we do the week after.
1: Boo.
0: Wah, wah. Uh anyway, tune in next week when we will find out if we actually are happy to not talk about Ronald Reagan. Yeah. And until then, this has been 1941
1: and This was half a Hitchcock movie. This was an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents that went on for quite a while. <laughs>
0: Goodbye, everybody. Good night, Lena.